Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. I am Alicia Swamy. I have Keely Severson and Eric Johnson here, and we're exposing mold. Today, we have a quite a famous guest, actually, Joel Salatin from Polyface Farms with us. Joel Salatin calls himself a Christian libertarian, environmentalist, capitalist, lunatic farmer. Others who like to call him the most famous farmer in the world, the high priest of the pasture, and the most eclectic thinker from Virginia since Thomas Jefferson. With a room full of debate trophies from high school and college days, 12 published books, and a thriving multi-generational family farm, he draws on a lifetime of food, farming, and fantasy to entertain and inspire audiences around the world. His wide-ranging topics include nitty-gritty how-to for profit regenerative farming, as well as cultural philosophy like orthodoxy versus heresy. His favorite activity, Q&As. I love the interaction, he says. He co-owns with his family, Polyface Farms in Swoop, Virginia. Featured in the New York Times bestseller, Omnivore's Dilemma, and award-winning documentary, Food, Inc., the farm services more than 5,000 families, 50 restaurants, 10 retail outlets, and a farmer's market. When he's not on the road speaking, he is at home on the farm, keeping the calluses on his hands and dirt under his fingernails, mentoring young people, inspiring visitors, and promoting local regenerative food and farming systems. Salatin is the editor of the Stockman Grass Farmer, granddaddy catalyst for the grass farming movement. He writes the Pitchfork Pulpit, column for Mother Earth News, as well as numerous guest articles for Acres USA and other publications. A frequent guest on radio programs and podcasts targeting preppers, homesteaders, and foodies, Salatin's practical can-do solutions tied to passionate soliloquies for sustainability offer everyone food for thought and plans for action. The rare combination of prophet and practitioner makes him both a must-read and must-hear in a time desperate for integrity, leadership, and example. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Rubino, The Mold Medic, and All-American Restoration the first and only mold remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Check out our show notes to pick up your copy of Michael Rubino's book, The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold remediation, or visit allamericanrestoration.com to get your home assessed and get your health back on track today. Thank you again for joining us today, and uh, we look forward to just learning more about your operation and what you're doing and, and how your operation compares to conventional farming. Maybe we can just start with that. Oh, boy, that's a, that's a big open question. Uh, I, guess, I guess the first thing would be that we run on carbon, not chemicals. So our whole fertility uh, and our whole uh, program is based on carbon. So we spend a lot of time investing in producing, creating, moving carbon, which also includes compost. So that, that's one. Uh, so no, no 10, 10, 10 fertilizer here. It's all carbon. Number two would be that the animals move. We live in a culture where animals aren't supposed to move. They're supposed to be confined in factory places. And it doesn't matter if they move. So our animals move. Third, they are they move primarily. They're all outside. The the next component here is is 
is portable infrastructure. So rather than stationary infrastructure, because they're outside, shelters move, water tanks move, feed troughs move. Everything about the, the program is, is mobile. It's portable. Next would be that although we have scale, uh, the scale is not a centralized piece of infrastructure. It's duplicated modules. So rather than having one big chicken house, for example, we have 200, you know, 10 foot by 12 foot mobile modular structures. That's it's a pretty big change. Next, of course, we don't vaccinate, we don't medicate, we don't we don't have vet bills. Not that we never lose anything. We direct market. So most farms don't want anybody around. Uh, we like people around. And we do everything we can to get more people around because when people are around, they tend to spend money. There are numerous opportunities to see the difference and they're, you know, they're real. Probably one of the biggest and most important unseen pieces of equity or asset that we have here is our water system, which is about eight to 10 miles of buried water line, gravity fed from permaculture style ponds that go over the whole place to give us pressurized water with no electricity, no pumps, no nothing. And, uh, and, and of course, the pond source, the, the sourcing it from a pond rather than a well allows us to actually add to the commons rather than de depleting the commons. The final thing I would say is that we are trying to, farm doesn't have any people. And uh, so we, you know, we have a lot of people. And, you know, so we run an, in, uh, an apprenticeship program, you know, to help launch people, young farmers. So there's a lot of uh, stuff to tease out there, but those are some of the biggest uh, differences, I would say. Wonderful. Thank you for that. I had a question about your multi-species rotational grazing technique. Do you find this helpful for the soil? Well, yes, absolutely, because the I'm not sure whether you want to concentrate on the multi-species or the movement. Maybe we should take those one at a time, kind of parse those out. So the movement component is all about pruning and rest. In other words, you are, you are disturbing it, you're pruning it, and then you're resting it long enough for the grass to grow back. The average farm where the animals are continuously grazed, have continuous access to pasture, those pastures tend to be short grazed, overgrazed, and when the grass gets just a little bit of length to it, then they come back and eat it, and the grass never gets out of first gear. It can never, it can never go through its, um, its blaze of growth curve, what I call, you know, it's, te it's teenage time. It stays at, at di diaper grass, you know, little infancy, and never gets going. And so by limiting the access, by controlling the access, we allow those plants to go through their rapid growth cycle, which means they're going to metabolize more solar energy into biomass and actually, you know, sequester carbon and grow more biomass from the available sunshine. So that's kind of the movement component. The multi-species component is all about running different kinds of animals who leave different kinds of manure and urine on the land to create a more, uh, a more balanced recipe of application. When you run the different kinds of animals, I mean, cows, of course, have big hooves. They have one kind of interaction with the soil. Chickens, uh, scratch and peck, uh, lightly scratch and peck. That's a different kind of interaction with the soil, along with their manure is different. And so every animal has a different kind of interaction with the grass, with the soil. 
And so by bringing different kinds of species across, you create a complementary synergistic kind of uh, relationship between the animals, the grass, and the soil. Climate change is a big issue, right? And I was just wondering how that is affecting your operation or if it is even affecting your operation. It's a great question. We actually don't know. We don't know if it is and how much it is. I've got enough age on me to know that, you know, things have been, things have been hot and dry in the past. I mean, I, I know that um, when we came to the farm in 1961, during the 1960s, when I was a kid, every farm around here had irrigation equipment. And then here came the wet, you know, the wet 80s, and they all sold it. And today, I think they all wish they had it back. So I'm not a climate change denier. Look, all you got to do is look at out look at, at satellite photos of the world and things you know the, the ice caps are melting i mean you know you go to alaska and you're running on uh, expressways that were that 20 years ago were under a you know a, a mile thick uh, iceberg or or you know a glacier so what what i have a problem with is a assuming that it's all man caused that there's not some natural warming cooling warming cooling cycle going on and number 2 i think if we look for consensus uh, you know i grew up in the 60s and 70s when all the scientific community said we were that by now we would be in a new ice age that that this you know the the smog and the clouding of the atmosphere was going to turn everything into an ice age and we were all going to be frozen by now and of course now I'm you know we're all going to cook and this is all from the scientific community so so I look for I look for well, where do they agree okay because I I can't live long enough or know enough to reconcile the two and the two, the one thing that they both agree on is that the carbon needs to be in the soil you don't want carbon in the air you don't want carbon in the atmosphere you want carbon in the soil so um if that's the one thing we can agree on can we all circle the wagons and talk about how do we make sure that we grow carbon in the soil that's kind of where i am and what the trajectory is how many harvests we have before we're all crispy critters or you know or what's going to happen i i just don't find those debates really fruitful what i like to say is where can we all agree and i think i haven't found anybody yet that said we'd be a healthier planet if we get rid of our soil everybody i know liberal conservative greeny you know libertarian whatever they all agree we ought to have more soil and the secret to the soil is carbon and we want the carbon out of the atmosphere into the soil that's really enough to occupy our attention right now absolutely and i think you know where i'm going to go with this question next how is conventional farming affecting our current topsoil Oh, wow. Well, what a great question. Yes, that is a great question. Well, when you figure that right now, you know, every pound of corn costs us about three pounds of soil. I mean, there's all these data points that you can use. But yeah, for sure, there are several ways to destroy the soil. The number one way to destroy the soil is to till it, to churn it up. You look back at the history of civilizations from, you know, the north of Africa to, you know, the Rajputan Desert in India to the the rise and fall of civilizations has often risen and fallen with tillage before herbicides the only way that you could you'd get rid of a sod to grow a you know an annual like you know corn or squash or watermelons only way you could do that was to till what was to you had to actually plow till turn the you know 
rip out the grass, if you will, rip out the, the sod, whether that was, you know, Native Americans using a, you know, a stick uh, with, with sinew rope to a shoulder blade of a bison as a, as a crude plow, you know, to make the three sisters squash beans and corn or maize, the, that kind of production. Or whether you were a, a, a rice farmer in, uh, you know, in Indochina putting in rice, this was all done with tillage. Herbicides freed us from that. And now you can just, you know, you can just nuke it with herbicides. But uh, it's kind of like trading the devil for the witch. So, you know, I don't advocate that either. But, but the point is that that bare soil, naked soil, tilled soil, that's the number one culprit. Now, that can be created either to grow annual crops, but perhaps just as important is that bare soil can also be created by overgrazing. And so whether you're cropping or overgrazing, you are creating nakedness, nakedness on the soil. You're, you're, you're taking the, the covering away from it, and uh, that's the number one way to destroy it. Chemical fertilizer does make organic matter cannibalize itself, trying to, to stay alive in a, a sterile chemical environment. That's bad, but it's not as bad as the actual physical manipulation that humans do, either through tillage, monocultures, or uh, overgrazing to the, you know, to the soil. You know, I was just doing some research on you and I found a really interesting book that you wrote in 2007. Everything that I want to do is illegal. And I thought that title was great. And I was just looking into that. And it seems like farmers like you are our few far in between. And it's almost as if we're so dependent on like this industrial way of getting our food and, and these monoculture crops and all that stuff. Is there a way for people to release their dependency on this type of soil-destroying industrial farming? Well, of course. It, it doesn't have to be done this way. I mean, when you realize that 70% of the corn and soybeans grown in our country go through herbivores that aren't supposed to have it in the first place, or ethanol, either one, ethanol or uh, especially corn, if we just quit feeding herbivores grain, that in and of itself would eliminate about half the you know grain grown in the on the planet, and and then you go back to perennials, and uh, you actually with good management as we've demonstrated, you can actually grow just as much or more milk, beef, lamb with an herbivore. Now the omnivores they do they do need some grain, but there again the omnivores historically were hooked up as food waste scavengers. So every homestead, you know, the, the chickens weren't fed grain. They were fed spoiled vegetables and, and um, apple peelings, you know, tailings. Pigs were fed whey from cheese-making operations and spoilage. And so historically, even the omnivores did not get very much grain because they were scavenging up food. And so our, one of our, our biggest problems is that we have a fundamentally segregated system in which our food streams go out and away from being able to cycle back into the salvage animals that used to handle them. And so food waste, the, the garbage truck goes to the landfill. There is no integrated, there's no integrated animal disposal system for our food waste streams like there used to be 150 years ago. And so when you add all that up, you begin realizing if you could solve that, if you could actually integrate the omnivores, and if you quit feeding the herbivores grain, 
to actually just grow the grain for people, you know, to be able to have bread and, and bagels and, and muffins every now and then. We would only need to grow about 20% of the grain that we actually grow, maybe even less. Well, as soon as you go that low, now you're down into smaller scale. Welcome to our, our rural disadvantaged <laughs> Wi-Fi. This happens uh, routinely. And it just is, it's just always very, very unstable. Sometimes you go an hour and sometimes you, you can't. And I, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to get back on, but it's, it just, it just won't, it just won't come up at all. It's so, okay. Um, that, that's, that's rural America. No judgment at all here. As long as we can talk to you in any way, shape or form, that's totally fine. Okay. All right. So I believe we were on just the track of, of talking about industrial farming and getting away from that. And you were, you were going on a rant. <laughs> I was going on a rant. Uh, <laughs> That's what uh, we like to you, call it. Yeah. Uh, what was my, where, where was I? Oh, I was talking about the amount of grain, the amount of grain produced. So the bottom line here is that we could go back to ancient, ancient rotations that actually worked and built soil between, see, grain is soil extractive because of its energy cycle, grain monocrop. When the anti-beef, anti-cow people say, well, cows are inefficient. Well, of course they're inefficient. That's why everywhere, that's why every deep soil on the planet is under where there were herbivores, you know, whether it's the wildebeest on the Serengeti or, you know, bison on the American plains, kangaroos in, uh, in uh, Australia. The deepest soils on the planet are not under trees and they're not under bushes. They're under grasslands because grass, perennial grasslands, perennial prairie have a very soil additive energy cycle. If everything was as efficient as a squash, watermelon, or wheat plant, we wouldn't have any soil on the planet anymore. It is these perennial, these perennial prairies, which humans can't eat except through secondarily through the herbivore. The foundations of ancient diets were herbivore, meat and milk, and seafood, because those were the three nutrient-dense things that could be acquired without tillage, back when tillage was, you know, was too difficult. With cheap fuel and mechanization, we were able to ever hurdle those barriers in the past, the, the difficult work of tillage, the difficult work of uh, storage of grains, for example, from one year to the next, all of those hurdles we were able to run over. And as a result, we've been able to erode more soil faster than any time in human history. Wow, that, that's, that's really interesting. And there's a really big debate, right? It's the meat eaters versus the non-meat eaters, the plant-based people, the vegan people. And, you know, you always hear this argument and it's just, it's people saying that eating meat is killing the planet. Can you tell me if that is true or false for our audience? <laughs> it's false. It's, it's, now, it's false with a caveat. The caveat is, how is that meat being produced? The problem is that cowspiracy and what the health and, you know, the, all the, the animal-hating climate change documentaries that have been created all pull their database from a dysfunctional system, from feedlots, from irrigated monocrops, from overgrazing. 
it's all pulled from a very anti-ecological, dysfunctional system. But you have to understand that 500 years ago, North America, for example, carried more pounds of animal than it does today. Even if you take all the dogs, all the pets, all, all the, you know, cats, all the pets, all the humans, and you added that up, we're still not in North America carrying the amount of pounds of animal that we did 500 years ago when the bison, the passenger pigeon, the antelope, the elk, the wolves, the 200 million beavers. I mean, you add it all up, and there were way more pounds of animal carried 500 years ago than today. So if the problem is animals, or well, <laughs> I'll go the other way. The problem can't be animals because if it were, and the, and, and the, the anti-animal whatever shtick was, uh, was correct, we'd have all burned up and been crispy critters a long time ago. Obviously, it's not, it's not inherently the animals. It must have something to do with how the animals are handled. And that's my point is that it is all about how the animals are handled. But the problem is that the agenda-driven scientists are not examining farms like ours. They're taking the conventional, they're taking the easy road, let's just do the conventional system, analyzing the conventional system. Why? Because they can't measure what doesn't exist. And so since what exists is the conventional orthodoxy of overgrazing, grain feeding, monocultures, and soil erosion, since that's the paradigm that exists, that's the one that gets studied. And it creates a very skewed, myopic expression of what's possible. I think that's one thing that meat eaters versus non-meat eaters actually agree on. It's the factory farming issue. I don't think anyone is for that. I agree with you. I agree that being vegan or being plant-based, you know, I might get hung for this in our uh, audience and our groups, but when you look at someone like Weston A. Price, I'm a big fan. I think Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, his book, I think that's a must read for every single American, anybody in the world really. And as you said, the indigenous people that stuck with their indigenous diets, which were composed largely of animal were much more healthy than the ones that subscribe to the new way of eating canned food, white sugar, bread, etc. So I do agree with you on that. So thank you so much. But one thing I wanted to ask you is why does grass fed and organic fruits and vegetables cost so much money if this is like the original way of eating? The, the whole uh, cost factor is an interesting one because, it, again, you got you to gotta tease out the pieces of it. And so I'll, I'll just tease out a couple threads here. I mean, I, 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 can't, I can't answer every single little thing. But one is that the, the subsidy system in the U.S. rewards certain things and, and therefore creates a prejudicial pricing structure in the marketplace to certain commodities like wheat, corn, soybeans, uh, sugarcane, cotton, and, and rice. So those are the six commodities that are actually the top. They, they used to be subsidized, and now, now they, they, they don't. Since subsidized kind of fell out of favor with the public, now they call it crop insurance. The point is you, you don't get crop insurance for amaranth you know, or squash or, um, or cows. And so those six commodities, whatever those six commodities drive, whether it's high fructose corn syrup for candy bars, corn feedlots for cows, whatever system patronizes those six insured, shepherded, 
concessionized commodities has an unfair price advantage in the marketplace. If they were not concessionized by taxpayer subsidy, then that method of feeding, they would have to compete on their own merits. And at that point, suddenly, chicken wouldn't be as cheap, pork wouldn't be as cheap, feedlot cows wouldn't be as cheap. It would all change dramatically if those kinds of things happened. Secondly, I'm sure you're familiar with the term externalized costs. And so there are a lot of elements here in the current conventional orthodox industrial system that are never captured on a balance sheet. How do you do, do, do we ascribe, I mean, I'll just pick one, the, the dead zone the size of Rhode Island and the Gulf of Mexico. Where do you put that on the nation's balance sheet? Does that go on chicken? Does it go on corn? Does it go on pigs? Does it go on herbicides? A little bit of it could go on a lot of them, but what value, what value is a dead zone the size of Rhode Island and the Gulf of Mexico? What, what shrimp, what crabs, what fish could that produce if it were not a dead zone, which has only been created in the last you know, 40 years due to runoff from the Mississippi, from uh, agriculture, chemicalization, and turbidity from soil erosion. So if that cost were actually placed on the various food items and commodities, you'd see a much, much different competitive picture in the marketplace as to a non-chemical versus a chemical approach. One of the tragedies of our system, you know, as clever as we are, and I mean, we're clever, we put a rover, we, put, we, we got a rover up on Mars now, right? That's pretty clever. We're really clever. But we're not clever enough for whatever reason, we're not clever enough to be able to take these negatives from pollution to aquifer depletion to MRSA, C. diff, antibiotic resistant, you know, superbugs. I mean, you take that gamut. We have not been able to capture that as a negative gross domestic product. It's like Wendell Berry says, he says, what's wrong with us creates more gross domestic product than what's right with us. So if I go out here and I pollute the river, that doesn't come off as a, as a, as a liability or cost on the nation's balance sheet. It's actually a positive thing because it generates, somebody has to come and clean it up. Well, now we've got to buy fuel. We've got to have a machine. We've got to hire people. We've got, you know, got all this economic activity to clean up the pollution. And so I would just suggest that a, that a culture that can't figure out how to put expenses of these kinds of major resource depletions if we cannot capture that on our nation's balance sheet and instead put them all in the positive column, we're on a collision course with sustainability. There's no way that we can continue functioning when we keep applauding ourselves and patting ourselves on the back for destroying our ecosystem. That's definitely a powerful statement. And Keely, Eric, and I, we definitely agree with that. And um, coming from our side, exposing mold, it started because we all had been injured by mold in our homes. You know, when we look at our homes and the way that they're constructed, they're constructed with really cheap materials with not the best engineering in mind for sustainability either not only us, but a whole subset of the population are dealing with a lot of mold issues in their home because climate change, uh, plus all these really cheap materials are just not helping us in the long term in terms of our health. You know, we've had experts talk about that on the show. So it's interesting to, to look at it from kind of like our food supply perspective. 
how are we handling our current food supply and what is that doing to our environment? And as you pointed out, it's, it's, not, it's not a sustainable system that we currently are operating on. And the solutions that I'm seeing are, are menacing. Um, and I just wanted to know your opinion on this whole idea of lab-grown meats and uh, you know, focusing more on plant-based burgers and, and plant-based processed products. I wanted to know how you feel about those. Yeah, well, there again, that's another you know, big discussion. But um, you know, lab-grown meat, first of all, there is no animal-less ecosystem on the planet. Animals fill an incredibly important functional role. There is no, to my knowledge, there is no commercial organic production system, vegetables, cropping, or any other kind that actually functions without animal manure of some sort. I mean, even the best gardeners, the best commercial organic produce growers in the country use fish emulsion. They use uh, dehydrated, chick dehydrated chicken manure. They use uh, compost from cattle feedlots. I'm, I'm not encouraging cattle feedlots. We make a lot of cattle compost too, but we don't have a feedlot. My point is, that when you come to soil fertility and development and balance in the soil and the similarities between balance in the soil are the same as similar as balance in your house. I mean, when, when, you, when you start building a house out of artificial cheap material, you have problems. When you view the soil as something that can, can, that can hold up structure and hold up functionality with cheap artificial materials, you, you have problems in your soil as well. And so, so your argument is absolutely perfect throughout the whole ecological system. And it stems from a, a basic idea of viewing biology or life as fundamentally a mechanistic thing. It's just mechanical and parts and pieces as opposed to a biological system. And there, there are big differences between mechanics and biology. And so lab-grown meat comes at this, again, from a very mechanistic viewpoint. And every single, all of the, you know, Impossible Burger, you know, Beyond Beef, all of the lab-grown meats are all using chemicals. They're not using organics. They're not using uh, compost for soil fertility. All of them are completely depleting their soils, and they're using, you know, genetically modified organism GMO uh, grains and using chemical, chemicalized uh, fields and eroding fields not building soil, all of them are depleting soil because they're all based on monocultures, not perennials, and, and uh, annuals and monocultures, plants that actually extract soil energy. So it's a, it's a dead end. It, it's a, this, stuff, this stuff is absolutely a dead end. And I mean, still today, I mean, you look at the deep soils of Iowa, Illinois, I mean, those, those deep soils you know, were built from centuries and centuries of bison and elk and passenger pigeons and prairie chickens and wild turkeys and, 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 and the perennial prairies that grew on top of them. And so you simply cannot have a regenerative system that either doesn't have an animal component or B, doesn't have a perennial component. Now that's just, that's just the ecology of it. If you go to the actual you know, nutrition of it, now, it's even worse because there are many, many vitamins, uh, B vitamins, K. There are numerous things that you can't get out of plants. Well, they say, well, just take a, you know, just take a pill supplement. Oh, yeah, right. 
So we're all supposed to, if, if you just start thinking about that, really, really, we humans, you know, who developed over who knows how, you know, how much time, think about what an experiment this is on humanity. We're not going to eat, we're not going to drink milk or eat meat from an animal that can thrive in our yard on perennial grasses. No, we're going to plow all that up or herbicide it. We're going to plant chemical-based plants, and since they can't give us all we need, we're going to take lab-made artificial supplements. Sir Albert Howard, who wrote um, an agricultural testament, which is still considered kind of the, you know, the foundation of sustainable agriculture, in 1943, he, he had a famous line in that book. He said, when we begin feeding our soils artificials, that's what he called chemical fertilizers, when we begin feeding our soils artificials, we're going to have artificial plants, which are going to make artificial animals, which are going to make artificial people who can only be held together by artificials. In 1943, if that didn't prophesy the current pharmaceutical industry, I don't know what does. That was excellent. And I, you know, I did watch a uh, documentary. I forgot what the name was. When I figure it out, I'll post it in our show notes. But this physician who was you know, more about holistic nutrition and all that, he described our entire existence as one big football field. And, uh, you know, the way that we've been eating now has only been about one yard on that football field. And so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was just, it was, a, it's, it's so good visually because you can see that yeah. you know, we are in this, in this mode of experimentation. And, you know, if you look at people now, I mean, there's a, a mass explosion of disease. Uh, you know, people are dying of cancer at higher rates more than ever. And so you have to take a look and sit back and see that, no, it's not just your genetics. You know, no, it's, it's not X, Y, Z. It's the environment has such a major component and what we eat does have, has a major component. And I can see yeah. the reverse argument of these people who think that they're being, you know, pioneers in discovering a new way of food or eating with the whole lab-grown meats and, and the plant-based burgers. But the argument is, is that we have to come up with this because we just cannot feed this entire population. The amount of people that we have in the world, we just can't feed them the way that we are currently. So we have to come up with these new ideas. Is that true? Or what, what's your perspective on that? Uh, no, it's certainly not true. But I, but I, I, ha I have to. I'll, I'll get to that. But let me respond to this. This, uh, you know, we're we're having all these diseases. Listen, the per capita consumption, the per capita consumption of red meat in this country has plummeted in the last 40 years. It's gone from like 78 pounds per per capita down to what 50 pounds now i mean that's a that's a, a a precipitous decline in you know 30 40 years and and yet we're having more cancer more you know all of this stuff and so there's no way that anybody can point their finger at meat even factory farm meat even factory i mean i'm gonna go out on a limb here even factory farming you can't even point your finger at that for the disease and the and the different issues that we have because our consumption of meat has been dropping over the last you know 30 40 years so I mean, it, it, it went up, it, it peaked, and then it's been steadily dropping. So if eating less meat was actually helpful, you would think that you know diseases would would continue to drop, but there aren't. You know, they're they're continuing to escalate. So can we feed the world? Can we feed the world this way. Uh, not only can we feed the world this way, it's the only way that we ultimately ultimately can feed the world. 
And, um, you know, probably one of the, just, again, I go back to the fact that 500 years ago, North America grew more nutrition. All right, if you want to just study just raw nutrition, North America grew more nutrition 500 years ago than it does today, even with hybrid corn, John Deere tractors, and chemical fertilizers and factory farming. Why? How? How did that happen? Well, it happened, it was done, because there was a incredibly symbiotic, complex, relational ecology going on on the surface, on, on, the, you know, on the planet. Goodness, we, we had 200 million beavers. North America was 8% water 500 years ago. Today it's less than 4%, even with you know, Boulder Dam, Hoover Dam, and the TVA projects. So, so imagine if we had more than double the amount of water. Think of what that would do for cloud formation, evapotranspiration, uh, which is the radiator of the, of the planet for uh, reduction of deserts. Think what it would do, I mean, just for flyways, for the, you know, uh, geese and ducks that, that are migra- migratory waterfowl, all the different elements of, of the ecology. And, and what we've done is instead of massaging this complexity, we have actually adulterated it with simplicity. As we adulterate it with simplicity, the production per square foot actually diminishes. Now, the production per square foot of one crop may increase, but nature never has one thing in a square yard. It has multiple things in a square yard. And so as we break these intricate relationships, these complexities apart, and move towards simplicity, we lose all of the symbiosis that nature has when there are edge effects, trees next to water, water next to open land, uh, animals, animals in grass, grass next to trees, trees next to grass. I mean, you've got all these, all these uh, beautiful, beautiful um, uh, symbiotic relationships. And the, the, the aggregate, the aggregate production from all that is far more than the aggregate production from a, a simplified, specialized, mechanized, monospeciated, segregated production system. And just going back to what you had said earlier, that climate change is an issue, carbon is... is getting out of hand in our atmosphere here and to those who are against factory farming that's great but animal farming if done right can actually sequester that excess carbon it also allows the soils to be able to absorb you know torrential style rains correct yes absolutely in fact we're we're doing our uh, our on-farm seminars right now and one of the little uh, quickie things that we do for about 10 minutes is we, you know, we take a little uh, pocket knife and, and uh, um, just push back the grass, find an earthworm casting. I mean, these earthworm mounds will be, you know, three inches high. They're, they're massive here. And uh, we'll, we'll, cut, we'll just cut through that earthworm mound on level to show people all those, that, that earthworm hole that goes down in the soil, sometimes as much as nine feet, to point out that when a torrential rain comes, it runs into that soil. Uh, when we came to the farm in 1961, we averaged 
1% organic matter in our soils. Today, we average 8.2%. And when you realize that every percentage increase in organic matter gives you the capacity to hold an additional 20,000 gallons of water, we've gone seven of those percentage increases. So seven times 20,000 is 140,000 gallons of water per acre we can hold today that we couldn't hold 60 years ago. That's quite profound. And, you, and if, if, you could, if you could spread that out, if you could duplicate that across every acre of farmland in America, it would dramatically decrease flooding, decrease drought, because, because if, if the ground can hold more, it can release it for a longer period you know, into a dry time like a sponge. And it would it would fundamentally change you know the whole soil uh, program. I'll say one other thing about that. Under in perennials in in perennial prairies, there is a bacteria. It's called methanotrophic bacteria, and methanotrophic bacteria lives in healthy perennial ecosystems. Grass grass based perennial ecosystems, and it's a it's a bacteria that can grab methane and metabolize it at the rate of at the at the um, the output of 1000 cows per acre now nobody's ever going to have 1000 cows on an acre and so it just shows how beautifully intricate and recycling the ecosystem is that it has the capacity to assimilate and metabolize every kind of waste product generated if we manage systems that actually eliminate waste. And the positives, the positives from the diversity are, you know, are quantifiable. I mean, we just, we just had a finished a, a two year, I mean, we didn't do it, but the, uh, uh, the Smithsonian came and we were part of a two year working landscape study that they did. And they were excited to find on our farm all eight varieties of bumblebees known to exist in Virginia. And this was very, very unusual. And the reason is because since we move the cows every day to a new spot, we have grass that's real tall, grass that's not very tall, grass that's just been grazed. So you have this mosaic. Instead of this overgrazed, consistently trodden down area, instead we have it looks more like a like a quilt, like a, a patchwork quilt, and you have all these things. And so you always have something blooming. So you always have pollen, which tends to you know, increase the pollinators, and the pollinators are like a canary, the canary in the mine. You know, they they articulate where we are on a on a regenerative or a degenerative ecosystem scale. And so, anyway, it was it was exciting to to see that on the report that we had scored so well the bumblebees, and they were excited as well. And uh, and I'm confident it's because of our uh, our mosaic type of uh, forage management. Hi, uh, Eric Johnson here. I was just going to ask, since all those benefits you described were outlined in the documentary Biggest Little Farm, are you working with the Apricot Lane Farm in Southern California? We're, we are certainly friends and fellow admirers. We are not working directly with them, no, but we are friends and we know about them. And I think we're on the same page, heading the same direction. We're just on, you know... I'm taking Route 11, and they're taking Route 12, and that, we we each have, we each have our route. But uh, I think we're heading to the same destination.
That's great. And since you've been on this track of, of ecological conservation and, you know, teaching your methods of farming, are you finding more people popping up doing what you're doing these days? Sure. You know, it's a, it's a funny uh, kind of Hegelian thing, the thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, or maybe it's uh, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. We absolutely do see more and more people, you know, uh, coming to this but we also see more and more pushback. And so, uh, you know, movement creates a wake uh, and, and, a, and a, you know, waves and a ripple. And, um, you know, it's important to realize that if, if what we did became the new orthodoxy, it would completely invert the power, position, and prestige of the entire food and farming industry. So there is a lot of investment, both emotional and economical uh, investment in the current paradigm, which makes it pretty difficult to, to flip over. So, you know, I, 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 I'm well aware that we, we I'm saying we, you know, in a broad, you know, kind of broad tribal sense here, um, we are only arguably what you know one at the most two percent of the uh of the food system right now the way the way we farm but that's better than that's better than point one and i'll take one i'll take two and we'll see we'll see if it can you know continue to go i, I mean when people ask well you know what would it take to to do that flip i think there's a couple things that it would take one is is, is a catastrophe you know catastrophic change usually creates innovation and um, catastrophe could be anything from uh, epizootic in animals to inability to get fertilizer anymore, cost of fuel, cost of petroleum, you know, uh, 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 it's soil running out, soil running out of, you know, its ability, uh, nutrient deficiency that's so low that, you know, people can't survive on, on artificially fertilized food and hydroponics uh, and impossible burger. I mean, you know, th th that's... That's 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 a catastrophe, uh, including a, 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 a nutritional catastrophe that people would wake up and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. If I really want to if I really want to feed my microbiome diversity, then I need to eat meat from an animal that is grazed on a polyculture of biodiverse forage. That's the way to actually get a much greater uh, diversity in my microbiome. I mean, many of these uh, autoimmune diseases, many, many of them were now tracing back to a simplified gut, a simplified uh, microflora and fauna in the gut. And so one of the ways to increase that, that uh, uh, diversity is to eat something that eats diversity. And so when you only eat plants, you're only eating what a root can extract. You're not eating what a plant that what, a, what an animal that moves around and can eat bugs and grass and all sorts of other things. Obviously, not a factory farmed animal, but but an animal that actually gets to move around and uh, and eat you know a hundred different kinds of plants. That animal's going to have a whole host of different kinds of of nutritional components, bacteria, microorganisms that you know that, that we get to ingest that, that gives us a greater uh, diversity plurality of, of the microbiome. One, one can be a, a, a catastrophe. Another one is 
that simply a lot of farmers die. And farmers are aging. They're aging out. They're getting old, and they're gradually dying. And so we need a, you know, it, it, it once, once this old generation that is steeped in, you know, in, in, in DDT and, and uh, glyphosate, uh, once it passes off the scene, perhaps the next generation won't be quite so embraceive of, of things that end in C-I-D-E. I agree with you that if we continue this this current paradigm of what we're doing, how we're growing food and everything, it's just more so going to lead to our demise. It's not really helping anything except making these companies money, profits. I mean, that that's all I really see beneficial with these monoculture crops being grown for packaged foods, fake meats, you know, fast food companies. So I definitely agree with you there. So my last question to you, and we won't, you know, take too much more of your time because I know you're a busy person. What can consumers do to make what you do the norm? How do we change this current paradigm? Well, the most important thing you can do is squint your eyes, look through the plate of food that's the, or the food that's on your plate. You sit down to eat. Just take a moment. <laughs> to squint your eyes, I'm being a little bit funny here, but and imagine looking through that and looking at the farms whence that food came, the processors, you know, that, that develop that food, and 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 what do you see as you look through that food to the farm under the plate to the processor? Under do you see you know red dye 29? Do you see uh, you know uh, MSG? I mean, do you see that? And do you see a farm with a compost pile and, and, and spiders and pollinators and dragonflies and life, a diversified life, uh, intersected forest, grassland, riparian areas? I mean, what do you see as you look through there? Now, as you do that, of course, you start actually thinking intentionally about what am I eating? And you just have to understand that the landscape the, the foodscape and farmscape that you're creating for your children and grandchildren, you and I are creating that landscape, that farmscape and foodscape. We are creating that today, one decision, one bite at a time. It really is that simple. We didn't get here with, with one big decision. We won't get out of it with one big decision. We get into these situations that we're in as a result of quadrillions and quadrillions of little decisions that, that we make, and we will get out of it the same way. And so never underestimate the power of one plate, one bite, one decision made correctly. Now, if we started down a discussion, well, how do I make sure that I, you know, that I am patronizing that kind of farm and all that, that's another it's another whole discussion. I'm glad to go there with you at any time, but for now, it's enough to just say it's not okay to say, oh, it's too big, or oh, it's too difficult, or oh, I just don't know enough about this. Or yeah, there, There's a million cop-outs, a million excuses. I'm too busy. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I, okay, well, then shut down Netflix. Who needs that? The way that we patronize the way that we eat is a physical manifestation of our real values. And if we're going to do something besides being hypocrites, 
playing games and fooling around, if we really are in this for all the marbles, and if this really is a serious race to you know recoup a lost planet, well, then we better get with it and start thinking intentionally about where our food comes from. You're just spewing out great golden nuggets right now. This is really great information. And I, I agree with you. I definitely think that every person has the power through choice, whether to go and buy what's cheap. There's a, there's a great saying that, that says, pay the farmer or pay the pharma. P-H-A-R-M-A. I really believe in nutrient-dense food, the type of food that you are growing. I think if we all voted with our dollars, we all made the conscious decisions to buy the food that is most helpful for us, that other food that's conventional, that's lifeless, that's nutritionless, is just going to fall off the map. For the record, I don't need any subsidies. I don't want any subsidies. I want the government out of it. Just get the government out of it and let us compete, even, Stephen, in the marketplace. We can hold our own. We can do very, very fine. The problem is that, that uh, we have a, the government ties, ties one of our hands behind our back, and it, it offers pretty aggressive weaponry <laughs> to, to the other side. And so when we get in our, our, our competition in the marketplace, we're at a, a decided disadvantage. So, yes, uh, you are right. Uh, and, and when somebody complains about price, I always want to say, okay, we're going to go to your house. You're taking them to your house. And I'm sure we're not going to see takeout. We're not going to see lottery tickets. We're not going to see cigarettes, alcohol, or coffee. We're not going to see designer jeans. We're not going to see, you know, you can make this list of things. And, you know, if... If food is our fuel, look, most Americans are way more concerned about the purity of their fuel going into their automobile than the purity of the food of the fuel going into their own bodies. And that's that's out of whack. And we need to we need to start, you know, sitting back and taking a look at that. I agree. And thank you for educating me on the politics side of keeping government out of out of farming. You know, thank you again, Joel, for coming on. And we really appreciate your knowledge and your training and your experience and just everything that you've been going through and what you've built for yourself and your family and what you're contributing to your community. And it, it would be great if, um, you know, Keely, Eric and I and my husband is such a big fan of yours. He was so excited. So we'd love to come by Polyface Farms and check you guys out sometime in the future. And um, could you just let us know and our audience know how um, we can support you in any way or how we can buy your products? Sure, sure. So our wet thank you, Alicia and, and Keely and Eric, you, you are absolutely all welcome anytime. And uh, we'd love to have you. So our website is Polyface Farms. That's P-O-L-Y-F-A-C-E. That's the farm of many faces, Polyface Farms. And um, in fact, usually if you just do, you know, poly, by the time you get to about poly, it'll probably pop up. And uh, our website, of course, has everything from our our vision to our philosophy to where you can, we we ship all over America. And what's fun is sometimes we ship to people who say, well, this is the greatest food I've ever had. I'm finally uh, uh, realized the difference. I'm going to try to find a local supplier. And we are all for that as well. If we can be a pump primer for that, that's super. So 
it is available. We we ship. I mean, I have I've written 15 books. Uh, those are available as well. It has my speaking schedule on it. Our gatherings. We do gatherings here at the farm, different kinds, different things, different topics, and um, come out for a day and have great food and great fellowship and uh, and stay out of the hotel. So um, and the conference center. So anyway, um, the website's polyfacefarms.com. Got a lot of a lot of information on there. Thank you everyone for joining us today. We had Joel Salatin from Polyface Farms. I was completely starstruck during this entire interview. It was really hard for me to keep it together because I really admire this individual and everything that he's done, his work with Michael Pollan, being in Food Inc. I mean, he's been everywhere and he's just been really touting the message that we can feed our entire population if we do it sustainably. And if we do it sustainably, it's actually helping not only us, but the entire planet, the soil that we depend on for our food and our nutrients um, that's rapidly depleting by what we are currently doing, conventional industrial factory farming. It's extremely bad for us, bad for the planet, bad for the animals. And so I hope what Joel is doing becomes the norm. And that's why we had him on today, because this is an extremely important issue. And it ties in with our passion about ecology and also trying to help the planet as much as we can. So again, as I said earlier in the show, the way that you can vote and the way that you can demand better is by using your dollars, buy grass-fed, buy healthy food, because that conventional cheap junk stuff that's in the store is going to cost you a lot more later in medical bills and medical visits. So definitely try to stick to the good stuff. Please like, share, comment on our content. Also check out our GoFundMe and Patreon pages to support this podcast and keep it running. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.